Good morning, saints. It's so great to see you. It's so great to have you here. And for those of you that are joining us online, a very, very warm welcome. We are on a journey at the moment through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus was sitting with his disciples on the mountainside, and he was sharing with them the principles of his kingdom. Because the culture that they were used to, where they lived in, were so radically different from the kingdom that he was introducing. And it took three years of journeying with him to get the message from the Lord. Last week, Matthew explained it to us so beautifully that the disciples were misunderstanding Jesus' mission. What are the principles of his kingdom? They were misguided. They were miscalculating his standards. And then Matthew concluded with this verse 20 that is the key to the whole sermon on the mountainside. This is what it all evolves, evolves around. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And Matthew explained it so beautifully that righteousness has two meanings. Righteousness, first of all, means living right with God. Will you say it after me? Living right with God. And that immediately extrapolates because it's not just living right with God. It means living right with others and also then living right with myself. It includes all of that. But righteousness at the same time is a position as well as a process. And Matthew explained it last week. But I just want us to reiterate, to relay that huge understanding it is a position. And Paul said it so beautifully in 2 Corinthians. He said, for, this, for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. And Matthew shared how Christ was perfect according to the law. He knew no sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, we were condemned, we were found guilty, and now we are a divinely approved. We are forgiven, we are innocent. The day you and I accept the Lord Jesus, the day He becomes our Savior, we have a position of righteousness. Not because of something that we did, it's a free gift. We just sang it so beautifully. Amazing grace. One day when we have to go and give account, I'm referring to the cross, stand before our Father with our lives, Jesus will move in between us and the Father. And He will say to the Father, Father, I've paid all their debt. Father, they are righteous. Father, they are innocent. That is righteousness as a position. But righteousness, on the other hand, also is a process. And Paul explains it to Timothy 
He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that men and women of God may be complete. And the word complete means so that we can be aligned with God, equipped for every good work. So righteousness also is a way of living. Every day I need to walk this road of righteousness. Living it out, in other words, the position that I have. People need to see that manifested through our lives. Can I use two other words to describe it? It's both a right as well as a responsibility. John says it in John 1 verse 12. He says, to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. When you accept Jesus, he says, I give you the right to come and be part of my kingdom. But it's also a responsibility. When I've made that decision to follow Jesus, that amazing grace that we just sang about, It means I have a responsibility to live it out. Can I ask how many of you were not born in the United States? Awesome. Just take your hands down. How many of you have become citizens of the United States? Beautiful. It's exactly the same principle. When you become a citizen of this great nation, you have the same rights as the other people that were born here. But at the same time, it also means you have a great responsibility to live out the culture and whatever is required from you in this nation. And it is the same with righteousness. It is a right, but it is also a huge responsibility. In today's passage, this is just the background, In today's passage, we are going to look at six ways in which Jesus wants us to live out his righteousness. I'm going to do three of them today, and then next week Matthew is going to carry on with the other three. So we are going to zero on on three ways that Jesus was trying to swing the minds of his disciples from the way they were used to doing it to the principles of his kingdom. Let's just pray together. Our Father, thank you that we can be called righteous this morning because of what your Son did for us on the cross. Thank you that we are free. We sang it. Will you please lead us now to understand what does this freedom mean and how can we live it out? in a way that will honor you the most. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. He starts off in verse 21. There are the three ways that we are going to look at is living his righteousness in relationships, in purity, and in covenant. Those are the three we're going to cover today. And he starts off in verse 21, where he said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, 
you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, this clause Jesus repeats six times. You have heard, but I say to you. And can I just pause here for a moment? When I read this in my preparation on Friday and read, heard of the ruling of the Supreme Court, thou shalt not murder, I had to pause and say thank you to God for what he has done. But beloved saints, it leaves many people, even in our own midst, hurt, confused, angry, and it's so easy to become self-righteous. But can I plead with you, let's come alongside them and journey with them and help them at this time of pain and agony and confusion and anger. Murder was only the external manifestation of an internal problem. What happened with the Pharisees is they would just tick the boxes. I didn't commit murder. But their hearts were so cold. They were so far removed from God. And Jesus was saying to his disciples, I look at the heart. I'm a God of the heart. And what is in the heart and what is outside are not two different things to me. They are the same. In my kingdom, Jesus says, it is all about relationships. Relationships with my Father, relationships with one another, and the relationship with yourself. And then he uses this example in verse 22. He says, whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, your fool will be liable to the hell of fire. There is no court that can find you guilty on internal anger. A court cannot. They can only find you guilty when that anger spills over and it affects other people's lives. Jesus says, the anger in your heart is worthy the same court verdict. I find you guilty as to what is happening in your heart. But it goes downhill very quickly. He uses this as an illustration to say you quickly go from anger to insult and then to you fool. The three words that he used here, angry, is you are bursting out in flames towards somebody else. Insult means, the Greek word is raka. It means you empty-headed person, you brainless I won't repeat all the other words that we've heard and used, but I think the one that people use here is, you blockhead. The best way this example comes to light is in the traffic. When somebody goes in front of you, immediately somebody's flipped the switch in your life and you're angry. But it doesn't just stay. We don't contain our anger. It immediately goes to assassinating <laughs> their dignity. And then it goes to the third word, you fool. The Greek word is mores. It's where the English word moron comes from. So the first thing we say, you block it, you stupid. And then we go on to assassinate the character. You moron, you're imbecile. And I won't repeat all the other words I have used and you have used. But you get the message. 
Jesus says, in my kingdom, that is what murder looked like. Anger comes from bitterness, resentment, unforgiveness. It goes downhill from anger to insult, to you fool, to bitterness, to resentment, and then we end up with unforgiveness. The illustration that the word uses for unforgiveness is that you are locking up somebody in prison. The sad part is the moment I go into prison to lock them up in my own heart, the prison door behind me also lock up. And I'm there with that person. And you know the story. If there is bitterness, resentment, anger in your heart, that person's name, situation, it spins in your mind the whole day. You cannot get rid of it. You are with that person locked up in prison. And Jesus is giving us two solutions. How can we do that? Verse 23. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Again, he starts with the outside action that the disciples were so used to. In our culture, we would go to the altar and we would see how much, they would show everybody how much they are putting into the altar. Big show. Jesus said, please, first go and look at your heart. Get your heart right with me. In other words, think others. Jesus was so passionate about our relationships with one another that he built in a double mechanism. He says, if I have something against my brother, I must go to them. And then at the same time, if I think my brother has something against me, I must also go to him. So if the one system breaks down, the other one is still working. Both are at work here. Says to them, leave your money. If there is resentment or bitterness or anger in our hearts, our hands are full of blood. And he says, I don't need your bloody money. Your bloody money, just leave it there. Go and be reconciled. Get your hands clean. Because I'm focusing on the heart. Beloved, reconciliation is of far greater importance to God than our worship. Can I say that again? Reconciliation with God is of far greater importance of he, to Him and in His kingdom than us bringing our offering or of us raising our hands in worship. And then in verse 25, he gives us the second solution. He says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. There is a sense of urgency. Don't let this anger simmer. Don't let the bitterness and the resentment and the unforgiveness simmer because it's like cancer. It spreads throughout your whole system. Deal with it quickly. Get to terms with it quickly. With your accuser. In other words, the emphasis is again with the other person. But you, look how Jesus used the same downhill illustration. He says you will go from the judge 
to the guard, to the prisoner, to the prison, if you do not deal with this. You stayed locked up in this whole process. Bad relationships affects three parties. Bad relationships affects our relationship with God. Isaiah said to us in Isaiah 59, God said to him, your iniquities are like a wall between me and you. My arm is not too short to help. I want to intervene in your life. My ear is not too dull to hear. I want to listen to your prayers. But your iniquities have formed a wall between me and you. He cannot hear. He cannot help. Second one, it affects our relationships with one another. If there is bitterness or resentment, we are locking people up in prisons in our own lives. And then the third one, it affects us in our own personal lives. We are also locked up. In the mission organization that we are affiliated with, we every year get about three to 400 new missionaries joining us. And then we have interviews with all of them to find out to which country they want to go and where they want to go and work. It was about 30 years ago, I was overseeing all those that were applying to go to our ship ministry. And then we sit down and have interviews with him. And I met this young man. He came from Canada. And just in introduction, just said, so where are you from? And he told me. And I said to him, so how is your family doing? When's the last time you saw your parents? He said, my mom, I saw her a week ago before I flew to Belgium where the conference was taking place. And I said, your dad? He says, three years ago. I said, are they divorced? He says, no, they live together. They're very happy. I said, no, how do you manage this? He says, no, I only go and visit my mom when my dad is at work. I said, please help me to understand this. He said, yeah, three years ago, I had a big fallout with my dad, and I moved out. I want to have nothing to do with him. I said, excuse me? I said, you have come, signed up to come and take the message of forgiveness and reconciliation to the nations, and you cannot be reconciled with your father. I said, I think you're at the wrong address, my friend. Oh, he was shocked. His eyes went big. He said to me, so what, 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 what would you like me to do now? I said to him, I would like you to write a letter tonight and say to your father, Father, forgive me. And Father, I forgive you. He was not very impressed because for three years, this bitterness, cancer has spread throughout his whole system. Late that night, he brought the letter. We mailed it. The conference is a three-week conference where we are preparing the people to go out. It was the last day of the conference. And he saw me at breakfast. And when he saw me, he ran to me. And he threw his arms around me. And he started crying bitterly. And I thought, uh-oh, did his father die? Or what's wrong? And as he calmed down, he pulled this letter out of his pocket. And the first... The first sentence, my son, I love you. The second sentence, my son, I've also accepted Jesus as my savior. Our unforgiveness and our bitterness is putting up a blockage in other people's lives, in our own lives, not to be free. God says, disciples in my kingdom, it's about relationships. It's about reconciliation. It's about unity so that the world can see that my Father loves us. The second principle is living His righteousness in purity. 
Let's look at the second principle, verse 27. Again, he starts off by saying, you have heard, but I say to you. Let's see what they have heard. He said, you have heard, and he mentions the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, it's so easy on this side just to tick the box and say, I did not commit adultery. But Jesus says, uh-uh. I look at the heart. You remember when Samuel went to anoint David as king? Samuel had saw somebody else there. It was very handsome and tall and everything else. And God said to him, uh-uh. You look at the outside. I look at the heart. It is the same story because he wants us to live our lives from our hearts outward, not from the outward inward. In those days, committing adultery was seen as stealing someone's wife. It was seen as something external. Jesus said, no, it is internal. Whether it happens in the bed or in your brain, it is exactly the same before me. But there is a big difference between temptation, in this case lust, and sin. Why do I mention this? Because I find so many people confusing the two. They confess their temptations to the Lord and not necessarily their sins. Beloved saints, we get bombarded every day with a thousand temptations. Jesus was the same. He also got bombarded with a thousand temptations. The big difference was he did not sin. And what we do is sin. And Jesus defines it so beautifully here in terms of what is sin. He says, but he who looks at a woman with lustful intent has sinned has already committed adultery. It's not the thought that enters your mind. It's what you do with that thought. Do you give it a second and a third and a fourth thought? That is the sin part of it. And that is what Jesus is saying. I want you to live pure. In my kingdom, first it's about relationships. And second, it's about purity of heart. To have a clean heart. And he said it in the beginning of the servant. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. There are three ways in which we get tempted. The first one, we get tempted by the flesh. The second one is by the world. And the third one is by the devil, Satan. And the strategy strategy that God gave us in his word is so different for these three. We get them mixed up. And then we don't understand why we struggle so much with it. He said in 2 Timothy 2 verse 22, Paul writes, he says, flee from your youthful passions. Flee from your youthful lust and pursue righteousness. So the first way that we get tempted is by, let me use an example I have the most delicious chocolate cake or cheesecake or whatever your fancy cake is in the refrigerator. I stand there with the door open. My mouth is drooling. And I say, I resist you, cake. I resist you. I resist you. You are going to fall like a big tree. He says, you must flee from your youthful lust. Close the door. Go mow the lawn. Take a cold shower. But flee from your youthful lust. 
The second one, he says, is the world. The way the world is tempting us. In Romans 12, 2, Paul writes, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This world is dishing up so many things that he wants us to have. And so many of the wants is birthed out of comparison with other people. It will make us look good and feel good and all these other things. And Jesus says, no, be transformed. Go and look for the things that will share my glory with the people. It's not about you and me. It's not about your wants. It's about your, what I need you to have. And the third one we find in James 4, verse 7. He said, submit yourselves therefore unto God. And then he says, resist the devil that he may flee from you. Satan uses exactly the same tricks that he used with Adam and Eve, that he used with David, that he used with Jesus. He's using the same tricks with us today. He has not changed. When Jesus was tempted after fasting for 40 days, Jesus only said, it is written. And Satan left him and the angels came and worshipped and served him. Do not run away from the enemy. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Because of the blood of Jesus, we can resist him that he may flee from us. But do not try the same with your lustful passions. There you must run and make a beeline. And then Jesus gives us two solutions again. Verse 29, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin. And the next verse he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. Wow, I've not seen many one-eyed and one-armed people entering here this morning. <laughs> Why? Because Jesus is using hyperbolic speech. He's using exaggerated speech to drive home a point for his disciples. What he was saying to them is, you need to deal decisively, radically, and immediately with your thought life to remain pure. Do not allow thoughts, patterns to develop that are impure. You need to deal with it radically and immediately. If it is your eye, look away. Please don't go through life with your eyes closed. You're going to fall very hard. Go through life open eyes, but look away from whatever is tempting you to what will be pure. And the same, if your hand causes you to sin, do something different. Don't just try to hide your hand. Be actively involved in the opposite. And the three ways that this, again, affect our relationships with our Father. When we have lustful thoughts, we have taken an image that God has made and we have made it our object of lust. It downgrades the image of God in our lives. The second relationship is with ourselves. It leaves us dirty and dark and very, very dead inside of us. And then the relationship with other people. When we 
have lustful thoughts, we are stealing what belongs to somebody else. Exactly what Jesus warned them right at the beginning. And then Paul describes to us, so what can we do? He says in verse 12, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So important. So often we think, oh, it will never happen to me. Paul is very clear. It happens to all of us. The second thing he says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, you are not the first one struggling with this. And what do we do with temptations? We never talk about them because we feel so ashamed. Can I encourage you to talk to others about it? Because they will say, oh, I'm struggling with the same thing. That was so liberating to me when I started talking about it with my close friends. They say, I'm struggling with this. Please pray for me. I'm struggling with this. Please. They say, oh, we didn't know you also struggled with it. Yes, sure, I struggle with it. I'm the main sinner among all of you here this morning. The third thing that he says, and this is for me so beautiful, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Isn't that beautiful? God is faithful. He knows your capacity. Yes, you may be tempted, but he's going to provide you with a way out. Look for the way out, please. It may not be the same door that you came out came in through it, maybe the window or the roof or some other way, but there is a way out of every temptation. You are not stuck. He is faithful. He will help you out. There was a little boy, he's five years old, and his mom heard a big noise in the pantry, and she said to him, Billy, where are you? Here. She says, where's here? He says, I'm in the pantry, but she just hears stuff falling on the ground. She said, what are you doing, Billy? And he uses these big words. He says, Mommy, I'm fighting temptation. I'm putting the cookie jar on the top shelf. (laughs) He got the message. Put the cookie jar on the top shelf. Out of reach. Let's go to the last one. We are living his righteousness in a covenant relationship. Verse 31 says, I was, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, Let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, again, this is what's said, because in those days, if you didn't like somebody else, you just gave them a divorce certificate. And they're gone, so you can go ahead and have another relationship. Either you do it to the woman or the woman do it to the man, both ways. And they could tick the box and say, well, we are not guilty, the Pharisees. But Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So it's just a domino effect. But what was Jesus talking about here? He was talking about the two covenants that there are. The first covenant we spoke about in the beginning. We are righteous. That is the covenant between us and God. And the second covenant is between husband and wife. These are the only two covenants in Scripture. But what we have done is we have changed his covenant into a contract. And Jesus was saying to disciples, my kingdom is about a covenant relationship. 
Can I just highlight a few differences between a covenant and a contract? A covenant is for life. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. A contract, you break it, you renew it, you change it, you tear it up if you don't like it. A covenant costs your life. It costs Christ's life on the cross that we can be included in the family of God, that we can become part of the kingdom of God. A contract only costs money and a lot of money. Contract, oh, sorry, in a covenant, the benefit is always for the other person. Jesus said, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His eyes were always fixed on us. What is the best for our lives? And that is a covenant. The covenant looks at how can I bless the other person? In a contract, what do I get out of it? What is in it for me? A covenant is unconditional. And a contract, many conditions. It's the main part of the contract is all the conditions. A covenant is based on love. And a contract is based on my needs and my greeds. And the beauty in a covenant is if I'm in a covenant relationship with God and I find some things difficult in his kingdom, he says, wait. And he gave us his Holy Spirit and he says, let me come and join you. Let me help you. We can do this together. In other words, in a covenant, the other person come around from the other side and join you so that you can do it together. In a contract, it is just a mess. You fight and accuse and leave. And then the last one. A covenant is a way of living. And that is what he's saying to his disciples. In my kingdom, this is a covenant relationship that we are entering into. It's a way of living. And in a contract, it is a way of convenience. Huge difference between the two. Now, whether you are today married or divorced or separated or remarried or unmarried, I want to encourage you, let's live in a covenant relationship. Someone once came to Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, and the journalist was asking her, says, Ruth, Mrs. Graham, have you ever considered divorce? She said, no. Because it's a covenant, but murder often. <laughs> Thought it was a brilliant answer. <laughs> Living his righteousness has nothing to do with the outside display of it, but an internal transformation. When I came to know the Lord Jesus, I tried so hard not to sin. And the more I tried not to sin, the more sinful I became until somebody helped me as a young Christian and says, focus on Christ. Make Him your focus, your love for Him. Love Him with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and all your strength. That has helped to change that I begin to, to live in relationship, in purity, and in covenant. Let me close. What are we going to do today about these things? How are we going to live out his kingdom principles? May I make a few suggestions? The first one is we need to understand, first of all, 
in Christ, there is therefore no condemnation. Can I say it again? In Christ, there is no condemnation. He wants us, all of us, we fall down in the pool of mud. The trouble is, we roll around in the mud. And he says, get up. I will cleanse you. I will purify you. I will make you clean again. Because I want the world to see the glory of my Father. And it's our brokenness that so often speaks much louder than our togetherness. Personal togetherness is what I mean by that. So the first one is an understanding. In Christ there is no condemnation. The second one is we need to repent. We need to say to God, God, I am sorry. And this is part of living out His righteousness to receive His forgiveness. Not just to say, Lord, I'm sorry. But He said, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. In other words, if I stand up from my mud bath, He washes me so that I'm white like snow again. The third thing that we can do is we can ask Him like David did when he had an affair with Bathsheba. He asked God, God, give me a clean heart again and renew a right spirit in me, a right attitude, God, a steadfast attitude towards you. And then God has given us the Holy Spirit. This journey, living out His principles, is not for mere mortal men. It's only for men and women that are fully dedicated to God, filled with His Holy Spirit. You are not alone on this journey, saints. God has given us His Holy Spirit. Let's ask Him to fill us afresh. And then the last one. Can I encourage you to spend time with Him? Because as we spend time with Him, we are aligning our lives with Him, our thoughts with Him. Shall we pray together? Let's all stand. Our Father, we just want to thank you that in you there is no condemnation. You want to restore us. You want to restore our relationships, our purity and our covenant. And we thank you for that. You are not into retaliation or revenge. You are a forgiving God. You are a gracious God. Thank you. But we also ask today for forgiveness, Lord. Forgive us where we have allowed our relationships to be destroyed and lustful thoughts, impurities of many different kinds in our hearts and where we have not lived your covenant but seen it as a contract. Lord, will you come again and remove the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh that when you touch it, we cry. When you touch it, we love. And renew a right spirit, a new attitude in our hearts, please. And then, Father, come and fill us with your Holy Spirit, please. Without you, we can do nothing. Thank you that you've not left us as orphans. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. 
And Lord, help us now to encourage each other on this journey, please. You are an awesome God. We love you, Lord. Amen.